I'm sure you've been to a fireworks display or perhaps a concert or some show where the grand finale is just incredible, right? It almost, even if the, conf the concert is kind of moderate or okay, at the end they bring out the best songs. Or in the fireworks display, it seems like they save half of it for the end. It's incredible. It's blowing. It's just, it just makes the whole thing worthwhile. When I was younger, my dad would take us on a sailboat, and we lived right near Annapolis, and we'd go down the river and, and, and uh, park the boat right in the middle of the Severn River, right by the academy, and the Blue Angels, every spring, would come and do these amazing stunts with their airplanes, and the ending was always incredible. Planes flying everywhere, doing stunts that you can't imagine, and you're just left being in awe of what, what a grand finale that was. Well, in, in similar measure, uh, the preacher is giving us his grand finale. He is kind of giving us his swan song, his last word of wisdom. This is really important. I mean, he saved the best for the end, in my opinion. And it's significant because he doesn't want us to waste our lives. At the end of all this, all these chapters of wisdom, he doesn't want us to play the fool. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, and it sits in the middle of the Bible. It sits in the heart of the Bible, and it's where God is declaring wisdom to his people so that we can live meaningful lives in a very disordered world. We have heard over and over how this world is meaningless, how it's disordered, how there is pain one day, pleasure the next day, and it seems so random. We've seen the harsh realities that to try to find Meaning and value in this life will lead to utter frustration. Remember when we began the book, we wanted to answer those questions. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Well, what he's doing here is he's giving us his last two nuggets of truth to help us live meaningful lives in a very disordered universe. The first thing that we're going to see is that we are called to seek wisdom to value the wisdom of God and seek it with all of our might. And then secondly, that wisdom will have its, its fruit. It will have its beginning in the fear of God, that we want to walk in the fear of God. Those are the two final nuggets of wisdom that he wants to give to us. So we'll look at each individually. First, seeking the wisdom of God. Now you see in 9 to 12, he speaks about the value of wisdom. And, and what the preacher does, we don't know, is it, a, is it an editor speaking in the third person? Or maybe it's a preacher himself, just as a literary device, speaking of himself in the third person. Notice in verse 9, he says, besides being wise, the preacher, so he's speaking about the preacher here, also taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. So I think it's probably the preacher speaking about himself. He's not claiming some, it's not some proud self-assessment like I am being wise. I think he's speaking more to a role, like a prophet or a priest. So he is a man of wisdom. He's a teacher. He's an instructor. Call him a professor if you want. But, but he is weighing and studying all the wisdom that he has just poured out to us. That he wants any who will listen to gain from the wisdom that he has gleaned so that we might live meaningful lives. He even says he arranged it with great care. Now you may say, well, some of these passages have been incredibly difficult to understand. And that is true. The individual passages, it's proverbial wisdom, so it's not linear as we're used to reading. 
But I do want you to know that he did arrange it with care. You know, if you think about the first chapter, there's a prologue where he introduces his theme. He asks questions like, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? He's telling us what he's going to do. And in chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 6, verse 12, he begins to explore as we did. We looked at, is there meaning in gaining wisdom? Is there meaning in finding wealth? Is there meaning in pleasure? Is there meaning in success and accomplishments? And then in chapter 7 to 11, he kept contrasting wisdom and folly, saying that, well, in this world, wisdom is still better than folly. And then in chapter 12, we looked at the very end of life. We looked at that aging process last week. And now here we're in the epilogue. We're in these final two nuggets of wisdom that we need to really grasp so as to live meaningful lives. So we see him describing himself as what he was trying to do. He's a professor, a teacher, a preacher, trying to give wisdom. But then he tells us how he wanted to teach it. Look with me at 10 and 11. He says, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. So he's saying he tried to speak and write in a delightful way. I think he did. I mean, not just calling us to delight in this world, to eat and drink and enjoy the spouses and the work we have, but his delightful way of saying things, that there's a time for every season, there's time to live, there's a time to die. Many of the things he said just resonated with you. They were just delightful to hear. But he also spoke words of truth. And I think that's what the two metaphors are reflecting on. These metaphors of a goad and a nail. A goad would be like, it would be like an ancient cattle prod. It would be a staff with points on the end. And they were used to put into the backside of a beast of burden, perhaps pulling a plow to keep it going straight. It would wound maybe. It would be a sharp pain. The intent was to get the animal going in the right direction. His words of truth have been that way. I think some have been hard to read. We read about the, the agonies of aging last week. We read in chapter 7, it's better to go into a house of mourning rather than go into a house of feasting. Who wants to go into a house of mourning? Who wants to go to a funeral? And yet it's good for us. So he wounds us to heal us. Uh, but these idea of nails... I think he wants, his also, he wants his words to stick with us. You know, you nail a board into a wall. It's not going to come down easy. He wants to nail the truth into our minds. He wants to say things that we remember, like the race doesn't go to the swift. You know, the battle doesn't go to the strong. The two are better than one. He wants us to remember these things so that our lives will be reflective of the wisdom he sought to teach. So the preacher's still kind of speaking of himself. He said, this is what I've come to do, and here's how I've come to do it. But then he moves to the source of his wisdom. Look with me at the end of verse 11. He says, they, that is all these words of truth and grace, they were given by the one shepherd. Who's the one shepherd? Well, some think that it's the preacher. Uh, you know, the preacher does say in chapter 1, verse 12, that he, he is the king of Jerusalem, and kings were often seen as shepherds. Uh, but usually you don't have two different designations for the same person in the same passage. It seems to be somebody else. Most likely, it's God. God is called in Psalm 80, verse 1, he is called the shepherd of Israel. But I think there's even more going on. The reason I say that is because one shepherd is used in Ezekiel 34 and in Ezekiel 37. And it's speaking about David. 
being a shepherd. Let me read it to you. He says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, this was written 400 years after David had died. So who is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the son of David, the descendant of David. Now, David was promised by God that he would have a son in 2 Samuel 7. And his son would have a government on his shoulders and he would have an everlasting kingdom. So he would be both king and shepherd. And I think this is what we're, he's referring to. That th this is seen as kind of a, a text waiting for a Messiah who would also be a shepherd. So it doesn't surprise us when we get to the New Testament, we find in John 10, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. And that's understood by the apostles. In 1 Peter 5, Peter calls him the chief shepherd. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 calls him the great shepherd. So here, Jesus, now I'm going to get to this later at the end of the sermon. I just want to stick it in your mind right here that when he's speaking about the one shepherd, I think that the preacher here is looking to one coming who will have wisdom greater than Solomon, who will be full of wisdom, and he'll be a shepherd teaching it. So he says that he gets his wisdom from God. But notice the warning that he gives in verse 12. He says, my son, he's flipping back to first person here, my son, beware of anything beside these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. You know, this is so true. Even back in the first century, Seneca was a Roman uh, Stoic philosopher, and he says of making many books, it is a great distraction. There were big libraries then. We've always sought wisdom. We've always tried to gain understanding. We've always studied. The libraries have been full. Now, of course, we are just overwhelmed with information and knowledge now. But even then, there was much. I think what the preacher is saying here is he's like an evangelist. He's trying to convert us to see that true wisdom can only come from God. Now, don't hear this as anti-intellectualism. You know, the church has for centuries, millennia, has produced some of the greatest thinkers, scholars, philosophers, and scientists. The church has produced them in Western civilization. I don't think this is a burn the books mentality. I think what he's saying is that the wisdom of mankind is just subject to change. It's subject to limits. It changes our ideas, our opinions, our thoughts. They come and they go. You could say in my close to 60 years, I've seen all kinds of thoughts and ideas change on marriage, on sexuality, on money, on all kinds of, even just within my own lifetime. And I think what he's saying here is don't go much beyond these, that the wisdom from God will be the only thing that answers the true questions of life. We see the changing wisdom even with the COVID crisis. Now, listen, there are people that are diligently working to bring about medical responses, and I am thankful for the hard work that they do. And I pray that they are successful and quickly at it. But there'll be another disease. There'll be another issue. In other words, the wisdom of mankind cannot serve us as only the wisdom of God can. I think that's what he's arguing here. I think he's saying that the, the, the wisdom of man will never be able to solve the riddle of sickness, disease, or ultimately death. It can't even solve the riddle of how do we change a criminal? We have to go to God. So it really begs the question for you to consider what is the source of wisdom that you seek? 
In other words, to whom are your ears tuned? If wisdom is not innate, which it's not, nobody is born with a head full of knowledge. They gain it from sources. What are you listening to? What forms, what or whom, forms your opinions on life, truth, goodness, marriage, sexuality, money, parenting? What forms your opinions? Is it the talking heads out there that all want to share their opinions and views? How closely do you listen to the voice of this one shepherd? When you look at the words of the Bible, for example, do you find them delightful or painful? Do you find them delightful? I mean, like David in Psalm 19 when he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Do you, are your opinions and thoughts on marriage and money and parenting and work and, and the like, are they informed by God's wisdom or are they informed by something else? Are they delightful to you? Or are they painful to you? Maybe you find yourself disagreeing and arguing with the words of Scripture all the time. Oh, let me ask you, in the last year, has there been any change in your life that has come about by reading God's Word? And you altered your life in accordance with what the Word has said. I see many people, particularly in today's world, we've had a number of kind of high-profile people deconvert. You know, they, they've changed their theology. They've changed their opinions. They used to think this way about marriage or this way about God or this way about salvation, and they've changed. New truth in their minds or new information has come in, and it's all changed for them. I see this in many deconversions, that other sources are sought, and they come in and displace the wisdom of God. It's a warning for us to consider the source of to whom are we listening, uh, to what are we listening to gain the wisdom that we need to live. And then I would also ask you, consider yourself as a learner. Do you consider yourself a good learner? I mean, do, do you expend great efforts to gain this knowledge of God? Would you say that you're eager in learning? You want to hear what God has to say. You want to hear the word explained. You want to, be, um, to have greater understanding of the truth of God. Or would you say you're more stubborn? Maybe you need more of a goad. Maybe you need more of a provoking to change gears. Are you willing to hear any sort of word of encouragement from somebody younger, maybe less experienced, maybe less intelligent than you? How do you hear a word that may initially wound, but it's intended to bring healing? What kind of learner are you? Just an area for you to grow in. Or what kind of discipler are you? I don't mean in a formal sense, in like a, a mentor and a mentoree. I'm speaking about a Bible sense, that we're all to be disciples of one another. To, to, to disciple someone is simply to seek their spiritual good. And so how are you seeking to encourage spiritual good in other people? A, a dynamic of any healthy church is going to be where the members seek to encourage faithfulness with members where the members are helping other members resolve their conflict. They're not just always kicking it up the ladder of leadership, but they're actually, they have the Spirit of God like the leaders do, and they're seeking to challenge or to encourage. Uh, you can do it through a word of hope. You can do it through prayer. You can do it through imitating and living your life before them. But to what degree are you finding yourself encouraging others? You know, Paul says in Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. 
so that you may teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. In other words, the wisdom of God for us to live meaningful lives is not just coming through teaching, but also through the engagement of one member with another member. And do you do this? So when you look at 9 to 12, it's a clear call to seek, to value, to go after, to pursue, to gather wisdom because you need it to live meaningful lives in this world. Do you have that sort of pursuit? Let me ask you, do you have a friend? Do you have one friend that you can call if you need to seek wisdom? We all need a friend like that. We need the scriptures, of course, but we need other friends to help uh, bring the scriptures to bear in our lives who know us well. Do you have such a friend? You know, J.C. Ryle was once asked to define what a friend was. He was a, he was a bishop, an Anglican bishop in Britain in the 19th century. And he said, a friend is a person that you would want by your bed if you had two weeks left to live. You don't want a political analyst at your bed. You don't want an economic forecaster. You want somebody who will speak to you the wisdom of God, who will help you walk those last two weeks of your mortal existence. Do you have such a friend? This is the value and the beauty of the church. You have all kinds of people who would want to be that friend for you. I encourage you, if you don't, to seek that out or come to the leadership and we'll help cultivate or at least move you towards people who might give you such wisdom. Okay, so that's the first thing. Seek the wisdom of God. That is for us to do, to pursue wisdom. But there's a goal to the wisdom that we're seeking, and that is to fear God, to fear God. That's what he says here in our second part, that we're, the, the, the beginning of wisdom is the, is the fearing of God. Look what he says there in 13. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So we've finally come to this grand finale, the swan song that he's going to give to us. He's going to finally answer that question. What is the meaning of life? Why do I exist? He's going to tell us what it is, and he says to fear God. He says it's the whole duty of man. In Hebrew, he's literally saying it's the wholeness of who we are. In other words, it's, it's why we are created. We've been built to fear God. Now, when I talk about fear, I don't want you to think some scary movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever the latest scary movie is. I don't want you to think of that. To fear God, I think, is answered uh, by chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, remember your creator. To fear God means that we believe God has created all things, that he guides all things. That he has sovereignly created, he sustains, and he's guiding all things to their ultimate purposes. Even the suffering that comes into our life, even the successes that come into our life. He's guiding all these things to his perfect end. To fear God is to recognize that your life has come from him. He has given it to you and he's sustaining it, and it is on loan to you. You're going to return it to him. The very breath you're drawing right now, the mind that you're exercising to follow what I'm saying, all of this has been given to you. You know, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God as a creator, to live in that reality is to live in the reality that everything I am, everything I have, everything I see, everything I experience has all come from him. 
Now, of course, he has called the man and the woman in the garden and following that we are to subdue and to exercise dominion over the earth. But we're working with all given stuff. It's, we're, we're just stewards. And so to fear God is to live in this reverence. It's to live in this awe, to revere God. That's what I think. It's a different kind of fear. So let me try to tease this out for you a little bit. C.S. Lewis in his book, Problem of Pain, he speaks about this kind of fear. And let me, and, and bear with me for just a minute. But he says, suppose that you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and you would probably feel fear. But if you were told there was a ghost in the next room and you believed it, you would, in, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but it's a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of the danger. For no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him. But of the mere fact that it's a ghost, it's a special kind of fear. It could be called dread. Now suppose that you were told simply there is a mighty spirit in the room and you believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger. There would be a disturbance, would be profound. You would feel wonder, a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitant and of prostration before it. The feeling may be described as awe and the object which excites it as the numinous, that is the divine. In other words, he's saying that when we are called to fear God, we're called to understand that he is something totally other, something of which we don't have categories to fully understand. There isn't something that we can, we can make comparisons with to try to get a perspective of who he is. This is really Isaiah's point in chapter 40 when he says, to whom will you compare me? You know, what Isaiah does to remind the people of the greatness of God, his majesty, is he begins to compare or to try to compare God. So, for example, in the tasks of God, Isaiah says, or God says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens like a span? All the waters, 70% of our world is covered by water in the hollow of his hand. Can you compare with that? Or the nations, he says in chapter 40, verse 15, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. The nations that we fear or the nations that fear us, these great nations that put the world kind of on edge, he says they are not, but like the dust on the scale, not even measured. Or the world. We look at this world and we think it often teeters on destruction. He goes, have you not understood from the foundation of the world? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Seven billion people. But they're no more than grasshoppers. There's no comparison to God or the stars. Lift your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. We don't even know how they're there, how they got there, how they're being held there, what they're made of. And he's made billions of them and names them all. I can't remember the names of my children. I have three. He has named them all. How do you compare with that? That's why at the end of the chapter, he says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah is appealing to the people as I'm appealing to you. With what can you compare God? He is the numinous. He's the divine. We stand 
in absolute awe of him. It's not a fear. There's a reverent affection because of his goodness of giving us life and giving us breath and giving us so many good things that we can enjoy. He has given these to us. He is a kind God. You know, J.I. Packer uh, talks about this in his chapter in Knowing God. And um, he said these words, he says, when you start reading Luther and Edwards and Calvin or Whitfield, that your doctrine may be theirs, you soon find yourself wondering whether you have any acquaintance at all with the mighty God who they knew so intimately. You know, we have so personalized God and we've so domesticated God that I think we've lost some of this fear. To fear God is to hold him in great esteem. To not be in dread of him, but to just see him as holy other. Now, when you fear God, you're going to do what's next, which is you obey his commandments. That's what he says, to fear God and to keep his commands. That our obedience is actually evidence that we fear him. This, now, you know, if you don't fear God, if you don't fear him, if you don't revere him, I guess you obey him when you want to, but you can dismiss him just as easily. I want you to understand the, the, the order of these things, right? The fear of God leads to obedience. Just like belief should lead to behavior, creed should lead to conduct. I want to be clear. Our obedience doesn't put us in good position with God. Our obedience doesn't, doesn't earn us favor with God. Obedience is like a measurement of our fear. So it's like a speedometer on a car. A speedometer on a car is only registering. It's only measuring how fast the car is going. It's not actually the engine of the car. It's just measuring it. Our obedience to the degree that we want to obey or to the degree that we repent when we don't obey, that is a measurement of how truly, how much we fear God. To fear God is to obey him and to obey him you can't compartmentalize our obedience. Well, this is my Sunday morning obedience. I do the rest of, you know, I live my life the way I live it the rest of the week. That's not so if he's the creator. The way we live, the way we think, it's all under God's view. I mean, the, the, the words that we use, the way that we work, the way that we handle our marriage and our friendships, the way we handle our money. They're all areas where we are called to both fear God who's given us these things and obey him in it. I don't want you thinking the obedience is slavish or coercive. I want you to see it as loving. In other words, you know, whenever you look at the commands, like when you go to the Ten Commandments in, let's say, Exodus 20, before the Ten Commandments, before you get to them, he says, I am the Lord your God. I delivered you out of the land of Egypt. And then, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. God always moves first with grace. We see this in the New Testament. God so loved the world. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while, before, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God always moves with grace before he calls us. In other words, our obedience is not to secure favor. Our obedience is fueled because he has already favored us. So in terms of fearing God, to fear God is to revere God. To fear God is to obey God. But thirdly, to fear God is to prepare to see God. Now, this is important in verse 14. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good, good or evil. I think he's just speaking about the judgment that's going to come. There is a coming judgment where the books are going to be opened and everything is exposed. 
the good and the bad, every dark little secret that you didn't think anybody knew about will be exposed. The things that you did that were good, you did something for the glory of God, maybe you sacrificed for somebody, you gave a gift to help them along their way and nobody saw it, God did. God knows it all. There is a, a coming judgment and the judgment is going to be, as I said last week, kind of an evaluation. It's going to lead to commendation or it will lead to condemnation. But there'll be an opening of the book. So how do we prepare for this? Well, we don't prepare by trying to pile up more good things than we did bad things. No, we prepare for this through repentance. Uh, we, this is in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's called shuv. You know, we return. We turn away from our sinfulness. You would see in the Old Testament where a person would bring a sacrifice. They would understand that the sacrifice did not bring them forgiveness. But it pointed to a greater sacrifice that would come. In the New Testament, you see repentance. Jesus, the first thing he preached, repent and believe the good news. Repentance is when I look at my life. I open the books before he opens the books, as it were. And I look at my life and I say, God, I'm sorry. I, I have not treated you as a creator. I've treated myself as a creator. And I have walked in ingratitude. I've walked with dishonor towards you. I've walked without faith in you, without love for you. God, would you forgive me? This is what repentance is. We see our lives and we confess the sinfulness of it. And we turn to God by faith, believing in his goodness to us, that he has provided one, Jesus, who has come to bear our sins and to bear our, shames, to bear our shame and to bring us reconciled and innocent to God. That's how we prepare for this judgment. Now, I don't want you to be surprised at it. You know, a lot of people think, well, God's not judging sin out there. All kinds of people are sinning. God's not judging anything. Well, let me remind you that a delay is not a denial of it. Uh, don't think that because you don't see it, because there's a delay of time, because of his own mercy, don't think that that denies the reality of judgment. I don't know if you've ever had these. I, periodically, I have these anxiety dreams. Anxiety dream is, you know, in my dream, I find myself all of a sudden behind a pulpit and I've got to speak and I don't have anything to say. I haven't prepared anything. Or I may be in my pajamas or, or it, it may be the test you have to take, but you didn't prepare for it. Or you're asked to give a presentation. And, and we've all had these dreams at one point where you're not prepared, right? And, and what do you do? You wake up and we all say the same thing. We all say, whew, glad that thing's, a, glad that's a dream. This won't be a dream. This is really going to happen. There will be a judgment. You will not wake up from this. You'll be acutely awake for this. You don't want to wait to figure it out then. You want to deal with it now. Now, if you're thinking, you know, I don't like all this God of judgment stuff. I, I believe in a God of love. Well, you know, I do too. And, and I think a loving God, just as a loving parent, would discern good and evil and move in accordance and separate or bring punishment where it's needed, so will a loving God. How do we offer hope to those who are suffering injustice and oppression? How do we bring hope to them without a day of judgment? You think about the injustices and the hardships that have been born. Even in your own life, you've been treated unjustly or perhaps unfairly. And what wells up within you is, I want justice. I want my day. I want things cleared. Well, they do too. How will they ever get it if there is no judgment day? 
those racism or other injustices and oppressions that have happened and they've never gotten their due. The day of judgment will be a day of reconciling all those things, but not just reconciling justice. The day of judgment is also going to mean that our lives matter now. Let's say you're doing something really good for someone. You're sacrificing themselves. If there is no reckoning, if there's no judgment at the end, what does it matter? Nothing matters. I mean, nobody will remember. Nobody will know. Everything you're striving for right now, maybe you're doing something really good. You're a social worker in a certain, and you're really working hard at it. Well, if there's no judgment, it can't matter ultimately. It may matter now, and I'm sure it matters to some now, but it can't matter ultimately. But with the judgment, everything matters. The cup of cold water, not forgotten. Crossing the oceans with the name of Christ, not forgotten. Helping a neighbor, not forgotten. All those things. Leland Riken in his book, Everything Matters, he says this, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, that hevel, that meaninglessness, but that everything does. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. The reason everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. It's incredible. Everything matters. From a book of meaninglessness, we have total meaning because God is a judge of all things. So to fear God is to revere him. To fear God is to obey him. To fear God is to prepare to see him. Last, to fear God is to long for him to restore all things. Listen, we've been through Ecclesiastes, and we now understand our word better. We understand our world better. Uh, gone are the trite explanations about why people suffer. Gone are this cause effect. We think that, you know, if you work hard, you're going to get your due. No, the race doesn't go to the swift. The battle doesn't go to the strong. We understand our world is upside down. We understand the disorder of it. And we ought to fear God by longing for him to bring it to its beauty once again. You know, Ecclesiastes is not quoted in the New Testament, uh, but Paul does allude to it in chapter 8. Chapter 8, he writes, creation was subjected to frustration. That would be the word meaninglessness or vanity. Uh, uh, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That was God. That's the curse. In hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even creation is a longing for liberation, to be delivered from this, this upside-down world. Now, the preacher cannot, he can share the wisdom with us, but he can't enact it. He can't cause it. He can't bring order to our disordered world. He can give us wisdom so that we can live meaningfully in this disordered world, but he can't make it. It's the one shepherd that will come. And even the preacher was looking forward to one coming because Jesus, who is that one shepherd, said, one with wisdom greater than Solomon is among you. He is this one shepherd. And only he can bring order. And the way he does it is by the incarnation. The incarnation is incredible. Jesus, this one shepherd, has entered. He has subjected himself to the futility and the frustration of our world. And he's subjected himself to it. And he has lived perfectly to please God. And he has come to bear the very curse that is ours to bear. The curse went upon him. And all the sin and the shame and the guilt associated with it. He bore the curse. He, he embraced, he endured. The curse entered him. He suffered the righteous wrath of God 
that we might be forgiven, we might be freed, we might be made new. He's come to bring a new order. He's come to create a new people. He's come to create a new humanity. This is why we explain this being born again, this idea of we're being recreated now. We're being made new. This is what Jesus Christ has come to do. And all with faith in him are being renewed in his image. So we long for this, both now, that incremental being transformed from glory to glory, to that one day that we long for that day to come when he will wipe away every tear from our eye. There'll be no more mourning, crying, or pain. The old order, this old order, this disorder is passed away, and all things are made new. That's what the book's about. We long for that. So, so if you've been listening, and you can agree that this world is in disorder, you can agree that you've tried the path of money, you've tried the path of pleasure, you've tried the path of success or achievements, and you know that it doesn't satisfy. There are longings in you for more than this world can ever give. This is because God has placed eternity in your hearts, as we read in chapter 3, verse 15. One author said it this way, that God has planted in us desires that stretch infinitely beyond the horizon. There is nothing under the sun that can ultimately satisfy you. The only thing that will satisfy you is to remember your creator with faith, believing that he has given you life and that you live in a disordered world and that through this one shepherd, this Jesus, by faith in his work and his work alone, will we be saved. And, and for the Christian, I hope you, you are being reoriented that all of your life is to be lived in the fear of God. That you look at your marriage, you look at your money, you look at the way you work, the way you speak, the pleasures you pursue. You look at all those things and you recognize it's not meaningless. Done for the glory of God, it's very meaningful. That's why Paul says at the end of uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Therefore, brothers, be immovable, be steadfast, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not it's not vanity. It's not meaninglessness. It's meaningful because done for the glory of God makes everything meaningful. Everything matters because God has brought forth his son into this world. So I, I, I trust that this book has, has given you a better understanding of your word, has given you a greater understanding of the glory of God, has raised up the need for one to come and deliver us from this disorder and to see that in the person of Christ that you'd want to follow him. That even now, in this day and in this life, your lives will have meaning and value and purpose because they're done for the glory of God. And they're done in the fear of God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. You've opened our eyes to these things. Father, may, may all those listening and even myself grant to us the grace to walk in the, in the mercy that you've given to us. Give us a hunger for the wisdom that you have offered to us. Make us be seekers of wisdom that we might be living in the fear of God for your glory and your purposes, longing for that day to come. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.